right. You know, yeah, you can clap. That's all right. Um, everyone go, bah. Fantastic. We are sheep. Hey, just a quick couple of things before we get into uh, opening the word this morning. Good morning. It's great to have you here in church. The uh, young man who was just here on stage leading us in prayer and those few things, his name's Tommy Hodgman. He's 22 years of age, and we're training him up, as you can probably tell. A great communicator, right? We are training up, training him up at, a, at our night service, preaching, speaking, talking. And um, uh, he did a, a parable, which I'm about to enter into in a moment. He did a parable at a night service a couple of weeks ago. I unfortunately wasn't there. But I had a team come to me and said, Steve, what Tommy did a couple of, you know, last week it was outstanding. Can we get him to do it in the morning? I said, absolutely. So in a couple of weeks' time, you're going to hear Tommy Hodgman speak here for the first time. November 18, I think. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> uh, just very quickly, uh, thank you so much for those who are involved in the GLS. And uh, these last couple of days, we got to serve our city, our community. Some incredible stories are really, have uh, already started to unfold from that. Um, and so, so, so very thankful. We already thanked the team yesterday, but uh, a huge thank you. We take it to Hobart this Thursday and Friday. Uh, we drive down, uh, 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 three of us uh, head down this Thursday. We, we do a Thursday night and Friday. Really, really appreciate your prayers in regards to the GLS in Hobart and uh, the impact it's already having across, across our nation uh, is huge. But you know what I got from the GLS this year, these last two days? And it wasn't necessarily, even though I got you know, a fair bit from the content, it was actually by the people who decided to be here. We had people in their 60s and 70s who said, in spite of how long I've lived, I've still got so much to learn. And one of those people sitting in the second row, he was sitting in the second row yesterday, and he's sitting in the second row this morning. It's Wayne Kerrison. He's our minister emeritus. He's been here for many, many years. He was a minister here, or still is in many ways. I've known him since the early 90s. And he's been such a, a, a rock and example to us. And he was taking more notes as a 70-year-old man than a 17-year-old man, young man was taking. And uh, I just want you to know, Wayne, you are entering legend status. Let's move on. Let's get into this. Well, good morning. It's great to have you here. A special welcome to those who are participating online, wherever you might be in the world. It's great to have you with us. We are in a series entitled Parables, Stories to Live By. We're doing Psalms at night, which we've just come out of the season in the morning of that, called Psalms, Songs to Live By. And uh, these are these amazing stories by Jesus himself who crafted each story with a purpose. And I think that every parable teaches us three things. First, first thing I think each parable teaches us is teaches us what God is like. It also teaches us what the kingdom of God is like. But it also teaches us and gives us instructions in how to live as his followers. Will you pray with me? In fact, would you pray for me? Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your presence. Thanks, Lord, for this opportunity to come and to open your word in such a way. Thanks for these beautiful songs that we've been able to sing to you. We pray that your heart has been blessed and touched by each and every person here this morning. I'm conscious that you are able, you are able to turn the hardest of hearts into something so beautiful here this morning, and I pray that you would do that. Thanks for the gift of your word. As we open your word, may it instruct us, may it 
build us, may it guide us, and Lord, may it challenge us. And maybe for some of us here this morning, may it steady us. And maybe in uncertain times, be a lamp unto our feet, may it be, and a light unto our path. Grant us insight and wisdom, we pray. You, and only you, be the teacher this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, as we read the parables, the parables are these great stories that Jesus crafted with great purpose, remember. And each parable, as you read them, they tend to have a twist to them. They, cannot, they tend to have this kind of uh, a, a moment where they, they kind of stun you, they kind of shock you. And I imagine when the disciples heard this parable that we just kind of saw, kind of a, a, a funny kind of fun kind of clip. Uh, I, I imagine when the disciples heard this story from Jesus himself, they were a little bit shocked about what they heard. This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, if you have your smart devices here, feel free to take them out. Go to Uversion, and uh, I think there's some instructions there on the screen. And uh, if not, if you've got your Bibles here, feel free to do that. And once again, if you don't have any of that, we'll have it all on the screen there for you, no problems at all. Now, one of the things we do need to know about this particular parable in Matthew chapter 25 is this, that it's one of the most intense word pictures that you'll see in all of Scripture. In fact, it's quite graphic, it's quite confronting, it's complex, and it's controversial. And this morning, we're going to go a little heavy. We're going to go a little bit deep. It's going to get heavy. I'm going to try to get us up out of that as much as I possibly can and where it's appropriate. Is that all right? It's quite heavy. So we're going to go there. But I believe it's in Scripture for a reason. But before we go to Matthew chapter 25, we need to put it in context. And the context is this. It's chapter 24 that comes before it, that gives us the context before we go into 25. And um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are significant chapters in, in the Bible. The context is this. The disciples are walking with Jesus um, in the temple, around the temple. And they look up the buildings and they're kind of having this conversation with Jesus about the temple grounds. And, and Jesus immediately says, well, that's all going to be demolished. And uh, all of a sudden, in, in this verse, couple of first verses of Matthew chapter 24, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. And they're, they're having this, uh, this dialogue with Jesus in chapter 24 about the last days. That's an exciting, exciting conversation to have, isn't it? About the last day. Let's have a conversation about the last days. And in verse 3, in verse 3, you can read it for yourself, they're having this private conversation. And they're asking Jesus in verse 3, it says this, it's on the screen, it says, His disciples came to him privately. Everyone say privately. Privately. And said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign? Everyone say Sign. What sign will signal your return and, here it is, and the end of the world? Well, it's a great question. That's a great question. I'm sure we've got questions about that. And so in, in chapters 24 and chapters 25, he begins to lay out for them what last days look like, what it looks like, before he actually returns. And he gives them signs. Some of you might be familiar with those particular signs. He gives them a few signs. And the signs are this, that there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, and there will be family. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, famines. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm glad you're listening. <laughs> it's been a big couple of days. <sighs> wars, earthquakes, and famines. 
Now, this is not the crux of my message at all, but just for interest's sake, 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Uh, Each year, they estimate 20,000 earthquakes, but in fact, up to a million earthquakes. They just can't record them each and every year. And uh, current famines in our world that we need to pray for, in our current day, famines are being experienced in Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen. And so Jesus gives them these few signs. And he's having this private conversation with his disciples. But he says, he goes on, if you read chapter 24, after he gives them these, uh, these particular signs that the end of, end of time will be, he says, but that's not all. In fact, you are going to be hated and in fact killed. And you need to be aware of this. But also be aware of false prophets. He talks about false prophets and you can figure out throughout time of those kind of false prophets that have come into our world and suggest that they're the Messiah or the Savior. And so he's, he's warning his disciples about these few things to be prepared for. And so I wanted to mention this because, and not really stay here, but because we live in the midst of a culture and a society, and if you're anything like me, sometimes that we don't necessarily consider what Jesus is talking about. We don't necessarily consider these last Days. Why? Because we're consumed, aren't we? We're consumed with what? We're consumed with what is current. We're consumed with our career. We're consumed with our future. But we often forget that Jesus is revealing to us in Scripture that there are signs for you and I to be aware of. And as Jesus moves from chapter 24, let's go to the next one. In chapter 25, he brings clarity to what he's saying to the disciples. And if you're in Matthew chapter 24, you might see there's a couple of parables that he brings to the disciples. The first one is the ten bridesmaids. Uh, If you've got a different translation, it might be the ten virgins. And so he shares this story of the ten bridesmaids. Five were wise, five were foolish. And I guess to kind of summarize this particular parable, and it's a very, it's a quick summary. He's asking, or he's telling the disciples, will you be foolish Or will you be prepared for these end times? He's pretty much saying, be alert and be ready. Be alert and be ready. Then he goes on in chapter 25, you'll see, uh, the parable of the talents, a well-known, a very familiar parable in all of Scripture. The parable of the talents. And he's saying, to be productive as you live between these times, my first coming and my second coming. To be pre-productive with the gifts that I have given to you. And so in verse 31, everyone say verse 31. This is it. This is where we're going to go. Because in verse 31, in verse 31, he lays out from what I'm going to call this morning, the sovereignty of the Savior. The sovereignty of the Savior. Well, it's a pretty big word, isn't it? So the word sovereignty means his authority and his power. Everyone say authority. Authority and his power. Say power. Power. Authority and his power. This is the sovereignty of the Savior. And so he's painting a picture of what it's going to be like at the end of history. This, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Judgment Day. This is where everyone 
is appearing before the king and the king is about to decide who is in and who is out. Verse 31 says this. Here we go. Let's get into this. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. Press pause. Let's just concentrate on that one just for a moment. There it is. But when the Son of Man, Jesus was often referred to Himself as the Son of Man, not necessarily as the Son of God. Most of the time He would refer to Himself as the Son of Man. Because it would imply his humanity. When he would refer to himself as the Son of God, it would imply his deity, both divine and both human. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. Let's get the picture here. No more debates, no more fighting, no more politics, no more famine, no more contradictions of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. He will establish his kingdom and this is the sovereignty of the Savior. His power and his authority is being established. Verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his what? What's glory? Yeah, I don't expect you to know. You see, when we think of Jesus, we often think of Jesus in his flesh. Lived, uh, born to a virgin, uh, lived amongst us, taught amongst us. We often think of Jesus in his flesh. We don't often think, as he's describing here, in all his what? All his glory. We don't often think of Jesus in all his glory. We often think of him in his flesh, but that's not Jesus in his glory. Philippians chapter 2 says that he emptied himself and took the form of a man. He was God in all of his glory, but he didn't hold on to that. Scripture teaches us that he emptied himself of that to take the form of a man. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his glory. What's glory? It's one of those words or one of those things we don't necessarily think about or reflect on, and that's okay. But I think we need to sometimes every now and then. Maybe I could describe glory a bit like this. Glory is a little bit like the word beauty versus basketball. <laughs> um, some words in the English language is, a very, is very hard to describe. And beauty and glory are two of those words. Yet, let's go to the basketball illustration just for a moment if we could. A basketball. All right, what's, how do you define what a basketball is? Well, a basketball is, uh, is either leather or rubber. You, you blow it up or you pump it up. It's how to define a basketball of somebody who doesn't know what a, a, a basketball is, right? Come with me, yeah? Yeah? You with me? So you, you, you're blowing this basketball up, and then you can bounce this rubber or leather ball. You can throw this 10 inches in diameter ball to somebody else. You can define what a basketball is, but to define what beauty, unless I just refer you to my wife just for a moment. Come on, man. Come on. Oh, all right. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> basketball, that's right, basketball and beauty. Glory is in the same category as, be as, as beauty. How do you define beauty? How do you define glory? Well, I do have a quick answer for you this morning. 
And uh, I did a bit of reading about this, and I went to well-known author and pastor um, um, John Piper, and he says this, um, uh, he says this, that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It is the going public of his holiness. It's the beauty that emanates from his character, from all that he is. I kind of summarize what John is saying here, that this is nothing better. There is no, this, is, this is the best version that you'll get of Jesus in all of his glory. Now, as much as I can see your mind's ticking like mine has been as I've been reflecting on this. Am I thinking about this whole deal of glory? As much as we try to get it, and we try to have that brain kind of stretch, it's still really hard to kind of get. But just for a moment, these next few moments, can we go there? Can we try to get this? Can we try to get this? Because I think this is important. Let's move on. The reason that Jesus emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2, would be, it would be so overwhelming for you and I to stand in his presence and in his holiness because of his glory, yet he emptied himself of his glory. Are we starting to get it? Two people are. So when he returns, when he returns, how is Jesus returning? Jesus, the scripture teaches us, he's teaching his disciples here, that it's he will be in all of his glory. Some of you are still thinking about the basketball, right? I don't know what a basketball looks like. <laughs> and so this is what the story goes on. He starts to separate them from the right to the left. In all of his glory. Verse 32, 34, the story, story goes on. Matthew 25, all the nations. Think about that. Isn't that awesome? All the nations will be gathered in his presence. And he will separate the people. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will place the sheep at, the, at his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, come. Try to keep this for a moment if we could. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Can we, can we tr try to imagine what this is like just for a moment? What's happening here is we have the Son of God in all of his what? All of his glory. We have the angels surrounding him. If you read Revelation chapter 5, the angels are in their millions gathering around him. And he's separating them. He's separating those who are saved and those who are playing around. He's separating the disciples from those who are doing religious activities. Is there, is there a more intense scene in all of Scripture? I told you it was heavy. And it is, but we need to talk about this. So let's continue to talk about it. But let's just come out of that just for a moment. Let's talk about, he's referring to two animals. Do you remember what the two animals were? Sheep and the, sheep and the goats. There is a real difference, isn't there, between a sheep and a goat? And I've been thinking about this. There's a real difference between that of a sheep and a goat. Is, in fact, Stuart Midson here this morning? He is. Stu, I hadn't, I hadn't teed this up for you, so don't feel you have to do this. But Stu's done this for me over the years. And without a microphone, we don't need a mic. Stu, are you able to do a sheep, a sheep noise and then a goat noise? We'll go to the sheep first. Are you able to do a sheep noise? Are you happy to do that? Listen to this. Can you do that again? Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I said we're going heavy, all right? We're, we're, we're heavy. I'm trying to, trying to hang in there, all right? All right? Um, 
Are you right to do a goat? Really? Really? Check this out. Yeah, that's pretty good. So there are differences between a sheep and a goat. Come with me on this. The sounds, they make different sounds. But a sheep gets sheared. A goat doesn't. A sheep is beneficial to humanity in the way of being sheared, keeping humans warm and clothing humans. Goats don't get sheared. I know there are other benefits to goats. They're just the baddies in this one. And God loves goats and sheep. Okay. Hang in there with this illustration. Uh, Goats have horns. Sheep don't have horns. Goats can hurt people very quickly. Sheep are harmless. (laughs) Come with me. Come with me. Sheep are humble. Goats are prideful. But when you're a goat, what I'm trying to say is it's, it's all about you. There's a sense of selfishness, isn't it? It's my house, my car, my life, my clothes, my job. The sheep benefits other people. The goat fights its own battles while the sheep depend on the shepherd for its own protection. A sheep is dependent and easily led that stays with the flock, but a goat is independent. A goat wanders and does its own thing. A goat is generally its own boss where a sheep keeps its eye on the shepherd knowing that they need to be around others to get to where they need to be. Is that okay? We're getting the idea. There is a clear difference between a sheep and a goat. Hang in there. The story continues. It goes like this, verse 32. All the nations, in fact, I'll just read this again. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Come, inherit, come. What I have prepared just for you. Come take your inheritance. And I'm sure the disciples had ideas of who was in and who was out. Well, the Jews, uh, we, the Jews are the here and the Gentiles are here. We certainly know where the Romans are going to go. As they're listening to Jesus, they're thinking in their minds. Well, we know where the Pharisees are. We know where the tax collectors are going to go. We know where the prostitutes are going to go. If we are honest, I think you and I, we have sometimes the same kind of opinion. You lived a good morally, moral life. We know where you're going to go. You follow a certain political party. We know where you're going to go when you're not going to go. Follow a certain football team anyway. Yeah, yeah. If you're a pastor... And if you came to church every week, you're in, and once a month, sorry, you're out. Did I just say that? (laughs) Just a bit of fun, a bit of joking, just a bit of a joke. But we all have opinions, don't we? They're kind of prejudices. We have opinions. And we decide. We play the Holy Spirit Junior, don't we? And so here's the surprise. Here's the surprise in verse 35 to 40. The story goes on. For I was hungry and you fed me, Jesus says. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink. 
or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Here's the surprise. The disciples kind of looking at the headlights, the deer kind of deal going on with the disciples. Here's the surprise that on judgment day, when the decision is being made about who is in and who is out, it comes down to how you treated the poor and those that were in need. Hmm. I tell you the truth. And Jesus is telling you the truth of the matter that when you give to the poor, when you give to the least of these, it's exactly like that you gave it to me. It was as if I was starving. I was starving. Are we getting it? As if I was starving and you fed me. He didn't say you cared for them. He said you cared for me. I don't know about you. It's rewarding enough, isn't it, to give to somebody in need? But this is telling us to take it up a notch. And it's actually Jesus himself that we fed or we provided for or we welcomed or we clothed. It's, do we get that? It's Jesus. Those 300 children that, you, that we sponsor as a part of Door of Hope family. The countries that we go and visit. It's actually Jesus that we visit. It's Jesus that we feed. It's Jesus that we clothe. Remember, Jesus invites these people in to inherit his riches. And the reason he invites them is because I was hungry, he said, and you fed me, and that's why I'm letting you in. Yes, you are absolutely right. There is a fair bit of debate about this particular parable. The debate goes like this. That doesn't it sound a little bit like we're working for our salvation That we're doing something to earn these riches, doing something to earn our inheritance. Now, if that's the only passage you read in all of Scripture, maybe so. But we do know that Scripture, the Bible says that in many other places, it's through our belief, Romans 10 verse 9, through our belief and our acceptance, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So if it's belief and acceptance... It dramatically affects how you live and how you love. And so our salvation, Scripture teaches us, is not by works. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For it is by what? It is by grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It has By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, if it was by works, we could boast. This is how many people I've fed. This is how many people I've clothed. But God says that's not the way it works. He says, Scripture teaches us, Romans chapter 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory. There it is. There's that word. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God, And that's why Jesus emptied himself and placed himself upon the cross and died in that terrible way. Nowhere in Scripture, by the way, nowhere in Scripture does it say that you can erase your sins by your good deeds. Nowhere. It is grace through faith alone. And true faith manifests itself in actions. And you can read the book of James to confirm that. 
So, this parable, this parable is a description, not of people saying that I'm going to feed this person so I can get into heaven. That's not their motivation. This is a description of people whose lives have been transformed, a thousand stories of hope and transformation by grace, and the way they now live their life has been dramatically affected because of that. And so he doesn't get them to focus on the end times. That's not the deal that he's going after. He gets them focused on how you need to live between then or between now and his return. From his first coming to his second coming. And if that doesn't motivate you, maybe the final part of the story does in verse 41 to 46. Now this is confronting. Stand by. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you. You cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, When did we ever see you? Does this sound a bit like excuses here? Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? Maybe the disciples, press pause, maybe the disciples are looking for Harry and Meghan. Come on. We go and look for the Harry and Megans of life. And I don't believe that Harry, the Harrys and Megans are the only people who deserve to be served and loved. In a sense, worshipped. Nothing against them. But I think each and every person, according to Scripture, according to God, has value. Incredible value. And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. If we knew it was you, Jesus, we would have been there bells on. It's interesting, isn't it, how easy it is to treat people based on who we think they are. Let's keep going. Is there a more terrifying passage in all of Scripture? What's unfolding here? God in all of his glory... And all of a sudden, he's talking about eternal fire. And he's saying, you didn't feed me. Jesus' motivation through this parable was what? Was to challenge the disciples to think about how they were treating the poor and those who were in need. This parable is not a parable on how you get saved. As we know and understand throughout Scripture, it's not by works, but once you are saved, it transforms your life, which affects how you live and how you love and how you lead your life. Jesus was never worried about someone trying to earn their salvation. Did you hear that? Think about that more for a moment. What he was concerned about was this, that people who call him themselves his followers, his disciples, but their life doesn't reflect what it's meant to be as a follower of him. Three responses, I believe, to this parable this morning, and I'm done, and it's this. The first thing I believe this parable teaches us is to open our eyes a little more. Open our eyes a little more, maybe, 
than we have been. Because life's busy, isn't it? Sometimes we just need to slow down and open our eyes. And Jesus said it this way that scripture, uh, in Scripture it says that when he saw the multitudes, he saw them like a, like a sheep without a shepherd. And they were, he was moved with compassion. And compassion comes from opening our eyes and seeing the needs. And Jesus wanted his disciples to live with their eyes open and to see the need that exists. That this parable challenges us to open our eyes, to see a need and meet a need. Second response I think this, this parable teaches us is to review and reflect on our own values and lifestyle. You see, when you open your eyes and you see how others are living, you see how half this world are living, you start to ask questions. Is my life, is it all about me? Or am I focused on others? Am I Jesus-centered and others-focused? Where does all my money go? Is it all about me or on the need that exists? Dr. Charles Birch put it this way, that the rich must live more simply so the poor may simply live. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? What's the first thing we do? Our first response, I believe, is to open our eyes. I think the second thing is to do an honest reflection. But the third thing and final thing is to take action. To take action. Because I think it's good to look. It's also good to reflect. But what does it lead to doing? What do we do? Remember the story, the sheep and the goats? The only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and what they didn't do. And so it's about doing something in response to the great need that exists in our world. This parable challenges us to open our eyes, to do a reflection on our own lives, but also to take action. But here's the greatest challenge, I think, that comes from this. The greatest challenge from you and I, from this parable, the sheep and the goats, is to see Jesus in every person. That's the challenge. It's a challenge for me. That's the challenge. And when the parable is done, there are two key questions that we all have to ask ourselves. Firstly, am I a sheep or am I a goat? And is there enough evidence to convict me in how I am living for Jesus? Door of Hope Christian Church, may Matthew chapter 25 be at the very heart of our church. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. In a moment, we're going to come around a meal together. We do this each and every Sunday morning together. And it's a pretty special meal, but um, how about we pray? Because this parable tells us about what God is like, what His kingdom is like, and about how we are to live our lives. And God, we are, we are challenged. We are challenged by this story. Help us, we pray, to open our eyes even further than they've already been opened, to be aware of the great need that exists. It's far too easy to be consumed by our own needs, but you're calling us. You're calling us to be a door of hope. You're calling us to be aware of all the need that exists. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a community who do such incredible things. Help us, Lord, to reflect on our own life and our own values and ultimately lead us, we pray, to take action, to do something, to adjust, to spend time, to spend resources, to bless others, to be Jesus-centered and others-focused. 
We don't do it alone. We do it together. Help us, we pray, to be Christ. Help us see every person the way you see every person in this fragile and uncertain world. And as we come into communion this morning, as we keep our eyes closed and we have this opportunity to remember Christ, to remember Him, to celebrate Him, the tension of reflection and celebration isn't there in communion. That we proclaim His death and we rejoice in His resurrection. But there's also an opportunity to look deep within, to look deep within, within ourselves and say, God, search me in these next few moments to examine our attitudes, to examine our intentions, to recognize that though we are many, we are one body in Christ. And so we eat this bread, symbolic of the body of Christ, broken for us. We drink of this cup, the blood of Jesus, poured out for our forgiveness. And all who believe are welcome and invited to eat and drink. Come, eat, drink together in remembrance of Him. Invite the team to come and serve us in these next few moments.